Good morning. We're going to be in James 1 this morning. We're going to get all the way through verse 8. Thank you so much. Brad pointed out that it took us three weeks to do eight verses. As if that was bad. I felt pretty good about that. James chapter 1. So, Father, in Jesus' name, I just profess this morning that I need you. We need you. We need your presence in this place. I need the anointing of the Holy Ghost on my life, Lord. Would you minister to us? Would you breathe on us? Lord, we're open to your conviction this morning. Lord, we're desperate for your encouragement this morning. Come, sweet Holy Spirit, brood over this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all the saints say amen. Amen. Today we're going to turn to the the famous passage where James tells us that if we lack wisdom, we should ask in faith for wisdom. I've tried to ponder this a bit this week. And I think there's an emphasis we kind of miss in our study of James I've told you before that that James is called in history James the Just or James the Righteous. Even, again, in Josephus and Jewish history, uh, he was known as the Just throughout Jerusalem. And here, in this epistle, there's no other letter in the New Testament that is described as wisdom literature. I can't think of another place in the New Testament, I don't think it's there, where we have a New Testament author trying to articulate wisdom principles or ideas. James is often classified as wisdom literature. The main books called wisdom literature in the Old Testament are obviously Proverbs, right? Like Proverbs is wisdom literature. It's the pinnacle of wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes, which would have been written by Solomon as well, and the book of Job's is sometimes called wisdom literature. And so James, who believes uh, so much in righteousness and integrity that he's called James the Just, is going to write a letter, the only one in the New Testament, that feels like Proverbs. Now, Proverbs is wisdom literature that's supposed to be quick, memorable phrases that you can memorize and hide in your heart, and that will lead you to what? Holiness righteous living. So again, James is a man of great holiness, and he's going to give us these punchy, short phrases that he wants you to store in your heart that will help you to walk in holiness. Now today he's going to tell us that we need to ask for wisdom. I'm trying to drive home, and I want to drive home today, the biblical emphasis that wisdom and holiness are intricately woven together, that you must have wisdom to walk in biblical holiness. Now, as he tells us that we need to ask for wisdom, I don't think there's any way to really think about James here, to think about his thought life, the way that he's teaching and writing, and to not think about Solomon, again, who seems to be a bit of a a type that James is pulling from, right? Solomon's going to write big portions of Proverbs and uh, be known as the man of wisdom. And then James is going to turn and write wisdom literature and then tell us today that we need to pray for wisdom. I don't think there's any way to think about James without thinking about Solomon. And I think it's impossible to think about this passage without pondering the, the night 
that Solomon had brought many sacrifices to the Lord. And the scripture tells us in 1 Kings chapter 3, on this night that the Lord came to Solomon in a dream. Verse 5, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? Ask, what shall I give you? Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. In other words, he's saying, I have no idea what I'm doing, God. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for the multitude. He says, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this great people. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this and God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall ever rise after you. So there's a night when God comes to Solomon and says, ask whatever you wish. And Solomon says, I'm just a child. I don't know how to go out or come in. You've set me to govern this great people, and I have no idea what I'm doing, God. Give me an understanding mind to discern good and evil and to lead your people. Now, I was taught uh, in my young years that Solomon asked for wisdom and that God was so desperate to give people wisdom um, that this was the greatest prayer request you could ever ask. God, make me a wise person. And now, for some reason, that didn't quite sit right with me because it, it wasn't, it's not as if God wants us to be great philosophers. That's literally what the word philosophy means. It means to love wisdom. And so when we talk about wisdom or, or Solomon asking for wisdom, we don't mean that Solomon said to God, I'd love to be Socrates. It, 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 we, we, we must, from a, from a biblical perspective, define wisdom. What is wisdom in the eyes of God? It's, it's not scholastic philosophical jargon, right? It, it must be something different. And wisdom for Solomon was not saying, I'd love to be very, very intellectual. I'd love to be a bookworm. I'd love to be able to kind of sit around all day with my feet propped up and give people great ideas about what life is. That's, that's, not, that's not wisdom that Solomon was asking for. He was asking for a godly wisdom that would help him discern evil. Because he was going to have to have discernment, godly wisdom, in order to lead the people. Now, one of the first great tests of Solomon's leadership. Remember this? He's, um, again, a young man, a young king. There are two women. They've both, they've, they've both recently had um, infant baby boys, Okay. And one woman in the middle of the night um, rolls over on her son, wakes up, her son's dead. And 
what, what happens in the story is this woman with a dead son changes the babies. And so now the other woman wakes up with a dead baby, but she says, this isn't my child. This is not my son. This is her son. And so the two mothers are in a total bickering match. Two, two mamas at each other's throat. Um, we would call that Jerry Springer, okay? Um, totally frustrated. And so they come to Solomon, who's, who's the king, the judge, the, the righteous ruler, and they're bickering and fighting. It's my son. This is my baby. The other mother says, no, this is my baby. They're just back and forth at each other's throat. Solomon says, bring me a sword. I'll cut the child in half. You can have half and you can have half. One mother with fury in her eyes says, yes, cut the baby in half. Solomon immediately knows that's not the mother. These, these tests in Solomon's life where he needs godly, practical, discerning wisdom. Okay, knowledge puffs up, the scripture says. This is not a request to be the most knowledgeable in the room and to walk around with a long robe on and, and kind of woo people with your great intellectual capacities. This is a request to be discerning, to have godly feet on the ground wisdom, to be able to walk in holiness in the midst of confusion. Okay, holiness in the midst of confusion. Now, um, let me... Let me just be a, a, a bit political for a second, um, because I'm a very political person, obviously. Um, I talk a lot of politics on the water when I'm, you know, trying to fish. Um, no, I can tell you when the fish are going to be moving, though. Um, so, election years. You, you've got to be smart enough to know at this point that the media is going to try to rile you up, right? You're not that dumb. Every election cycle, there are these national events where the media begins to try to rile us up and turn us against each other. There are, there are news cycle events that are painted in certain ways to draw a certain intended reactions from you. And sometimes us as believers, we're so dim-witted we, we lack the godly wisdom to slow down and to ask God, what is justice? What is righteousness? How do we maintain peace and harmony in the church? How do we walk in wisdom when, when everyone in our culture is throwing stones left and right? And we've, we've talked in the past, and we could talk more if you'd like, about our, what the Bible teaches about race. That's really easy. That all people are created equal in God's image, period, in the Imago Dei. Red, yellow, black, and white have total value. If anyone in our society, in any culture, is ever degraded on the basis of their skin color, that is biblically called evil, period. Don't, re don't really care, okay? That's what the Bible teaches. But if we don't acknowledge that culture would love to pin us against each other on the basis of our skin color, because politicians want to get what politicians want to get, and if we're not wise enough to walk through those things, then we're going to allow the enemy to have a heyday in our midst. Does this make sense? I could walk through this on, on several issues. Um, we want to talk about... How, how should we relate with media and culture? How do we love our culture 
big one. Let's go there. Um, you want to talk about sexuality in our culture. Every church has to decide, every Christian has to decide what's coming down the pipe, how we are going to interact with people who are transgender, for instance. Are we, are we going to turn our noses and, and kind of do, don't look at that? Or are we going to treat people with dignity and respect while we disagree with the posture? Like you're going to have to have godly wisdom on how to walk these things out. In the extreme of just, I'll just treat people like trash or just ignore people and pretend like they don't exist. That's actually not godly or wise. You're, you're going to have to have wisdom. The, the confusing chaos, cultural chaos, muddy fogginess that we live in requires godly discernment in order to live out holiness in this day. You're offered a job and it feels good, right? The pay increase, the environment looks healthy, but the employer, that man, something about him just doesn't sit right. You've got to have wisdom in these kind of scenarios with your teenagers, right? Maybe you've got teens and they have friends and the friends seem healthy enough, but something about the way your teenager is talking back to you doesn't seem, there's something about an influence here that's not healthy. I'm not sure what it is. I can't put my finger on it. God, I need wisdom to lead. There are moments like this in life, daily moments, where you're going to have to cry out for wisdom. Wisdom and holiness are intricately woven together. Solomon recognizes that in order to live holy in this season, he's going to need a discerning mind, a wise heart. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So now, biblically speaking, in wisdom literature, wisdom correlates with holiness and foolishness. Stupidity correlates with sinfulness. Okay, so James is going to tell us we need to ask for wisdom. James the just, James the righteous, the only New Testament author who's going to give us wisdom literature, today is going to tell us when you lack wisdom, ask for wisdom. You guys with me so far? James 1.5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Now James just told us first that we must ask for wisdom. And then he's going to spend some time defining how we should ask for wisdom. So let's just follow his line of logic here first. If any of you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God. This line reminds me again of Solomon asking God 
for discernment, for wisdom. James is saying, and, and, and in church history, I could show you this, and this should be in your practical life. This should be a scripture you tuck away. In church history, there are these moments of confusion and chaos where the church fathers and mothers pray, God, give me wisdom. And in faith, they just believe that God's going to guide their steps. This is a promise, a biblical promise, that when you meet chaos, you can lean into God in faith, request wisdom, and trust that your steps will be guided by the hand of God. We must get to the place where we really recognize we need wisdom. The ministry school that Haley and I used to, that I used to work at before, um, in Columbia, I used to teach sometimes principles of prayer. I like to teach principles of prayer. And I would read this story from 1 Kings chapter 3, from uh, Solomon and uh, do this kind of silly exercise with the students. It's a little bit silly, but it's actually a bit profound when you play with it. I would say to the the students, um, all right, God comes to you in a dream and says, ask whatever you wish. I need three paragraphs on why you're going to ask for what you ask for. Um, now, everyone moans and groans and is frustrated because it seems like a dumb exercise. Um, but when you start to write, I'd always get kids who would say, I'm going to ask God for $3 billion because I want to be Elon Musk and go to Mars. Um, cool. That, and, and then you start to try to write two more paragraphs on why you're going to ask for that. And you realize really quickly that you might not actually have the character to be a billionaire and that billions of dollars might actually lead you to sin and slothfulness and, and to destruction. And then you start to pray instead, God, give me my daily bread. Or you say, you got some kid, I want to be famous, a famous musician, and I'm going to lead people to the Lord. And then you start to write and you go, that might actually lead me to a life of sinfulness. And then you start to pray, God, whatever your plans are for my life, whatever your dreams are for me, may I excel in my God-given design in the seasons that God has designed. Your, Your prayer life totally shifts when you stop playing with these kind of frivolous, poppy, little, I, I, I wish, I want. And you start to hone down a bit like Solomon did on, oh, what I actually probably need is a holy discernment that helps me walk step by step in rhythm with the Holy Spirit. If God makes you a billionaire, I'll go to Mars with you, okay? If any of you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously. The Greek here, um, translated generously, is actually really interesting. It, uh, the theme, there's a theme in the text that we kind of miss when we come into English. When he says that um, God will give generously, it communicates a single-minded determination. So it, the idea here is, think of when a child is hurt. Um, really hurt. Do you know how when your kids cry, you know, like if they're really hurt or if they're just playing you? Do you know what I'm talking about? Just me? I, gotta, I must have some little manipulators in my house. Um, you know there's a certain cry. Something's really wrong. In the moment when a child's really hurt, my house could be burning down and Haley's running at the kid, right? Like all hell could be breaking loose. But with that cry, the, the heart of a parent is single-mindedly devoted to getting to the child, Right? Like nothing, all, again, all hell could be breaking loose, fire, brimstone falling from the sky. Um, I'm getting to that kid. That, that's what you would call like single-minded devotedness. 
So the scripture says that when it says God gives generously, translators translate that line a million different ways because they can't quite articulate what it's trying to say in English in a quick way. But what it's trying to say is that any who lack wisdom ask God, like a parent who is totally tunnel visioned, God tunnel visions with determination to give wisdom to his children. The idea being communicated is that God is viciously, viciously devoted to providing us with wisdom in seasons of trial. Parents in the room, grandparents, aunts and uncles, like you want nothing more than for your kids to not be foolish, right? Have you ever heard of a dad not wanting to give advice? It just doesn't happen. There's no such thing as a kid calling and saying, Dad, I don't know what to do here. And the dad's saying, good luck. <laughs> Have you asked Jeeves? Right? Like, it just, Do you guys remember Ask Jeeves? That was a thing. It's like Google. It just doesn't happen. Like it is totally unnatural. Like the, one of the things that fathers want more than anything is the ability to speak wisdom into the life of their children. That is an image, again, of God and the way he relates to us. God is viciously devoted to giving wisdom, granting wisdom generously, graciously, giving wisdom to all who come to him and ask. So God will give generously to all who ask. Now watch, God gives generously to all. James is communicating this because he wants you to understand this. God does not give wisdom generously to the nun who dresses in religious garb and keeps herself perfectly holy in a cave somewhere. God does not give himself, give wisdom generously just to the pastors or preachers or missionaries. God does not give wisdom generously just to those who have performed or practiced religious exercises with great excellence. God does not give wisdom generously just to your brother or sister who made the right decisions in their teen years and you're still picking up the mess that you made. No, God gives generously to all. To all. That is the idea that James wants to communicate here. God will viciously be devoted to giving wisdom to all who come to him without reproach. What does without reproach mean? Without reproach means that God will give wisdom to all who come to him and ask and will never belittle you or turn you away or mock you for lacking understanding. God never, the gracious heart of our Father, never looks at you and says, you idiot. I do that. Okay, I do that all the time. I'm kidding. God never looks at you and says, you, you slothful. He, he never looks at you and says, well, if you would have done what I told you to do three years ago, when I told you not to do that, then you wouldn't be in the mess that you're in trying to sort through a divorce. God doesn't, God doesn't. There's, there's no reproach. He doesn't belittle you for the dumb decisions you made to get in the mess that you're in. All he does, all he promises to do is to lavish wisdom, discernment, his gracious leadership upon you when you come and ask. Again, that's a promise of Scripture. He gives wisdom to all without reproach. Now, we're told there that God's going to give us wisdom when we ask. And then James is going to turn and tell us how we should ask, how to pray. He says you should ask with faith, without doubting. 
You're to ask for wisdom in confidence that the good, kind heart of God hears and will respond. You're in a spiritual war with doubt and unbelief. That's why you should have your shield of faith that extinguishes all the fiery darts of the enemy. You are in a daily battle with unbelief and you must, in your Christian life, learn to rise up with faith. It pleases God that you rise up with faith. He says that those who ask and then waver in unbelief, they're double-minded is the way that we're translated here. The Greek literally means they're double-souled. Now, play with, again, the Greek generously from the first verse, and you see that there's a consistent theme here. So God, with a single-minded devotedness, will viciously give us wisdom. And then he says, but when you ask, you should ask with a single-minded faith and not be double-minded or double-souled. You should be fixed, set on faith and believing that God hears. Now, double-mindedness is is huge. Is exactly what Jesus is speaking against when he says, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's the Shema, the, the, what the uh, Jews would teach to their children faithfully. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now, the Lord is one does communicate uh, uh, a, a singleness. And, and we obviously believe that God is triune, but he's united perfectly. Three persons united, one being. God is one. But, but here again, even it's saying, Hear, O Israel, God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your... You see that there's a, there's a theme here of integrity, of wholeness, of completeness. So God is complete. God is sure. God has integrity. God is not wayward. God doesn't say one thing and mean another. His yes is yes and his no is no. All of his promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. All of his words come to pass. Everything he says will be fulfilled. His words don't come back void. God is a, 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 a beast of perfect integrity. And then he says, you should love God with integrity and wholeness and all your strength and all your soul and all your might. You should not love God on Sunday and love the world on Monday. You should not love God on Wednesday night in prayer and wake up Thursday morning and love your profane music. You should love God with all your being, with all your strength, with all your mind. So, so here, remember last week we said that James told us that we should rejoice in trials because the trials produce in us perseverance. And when we let perseverance do its work, then we will reach completion, wholeness, will lack nothing. So the themes here are, again, that God is leading us to completion, to wholeness, to a place of integrity, to a place where we can stand and know that my heart loves God fully and no one else. That, that my faith is settled in God, period. I was talking with some brothers, I don't know, a week or so ago, and we were talking about this old principle that's always been said. Uh, have you ever heard this saying, you, you can't stop a bird from landing in your hair, but you can stop him, stop him from making his nest there. You ever heard this before? So the idea of like, 
the enemy is going to assault your mind with unbelief and doubt, but you must rise up in faith and shoo the bird away. I can't stop it from landing here, but I can make dang sure it doesn't make a nest here. And and we've got to get to the place where we are, for lack of better words, dogged. God is looking for dogged faith, dogmatic faith. You you get the theme of that. It means you grip something and you and you don't let it go. Dogged. We used to have uh, too many pit bulls. Um, me, my bro- older brother and I have more dogs than we should have had. And and they, they people talk about lockjaw. It's kind of a thing. It's kind of not a thing. They just bite and they won't let go. And my brother would take a cigarette and put it on the dog's nose when they were fighting. That's the only way you could get them to release. Um, that might be animal cruelty. I don't know. <laughs> might have just condemned myself. <laughs> it was my brother. <laughs> They, would, they don't let go. Um, but that, that literally is the idea of dogged. And again, it's where we get the root dogmatic. Um, you you kind of follow that line of thought. God is looking for this kind of dogged faith that, that's, that's not double-minded, that's not double-souled, that says, I love God with all my heart. I trust God with all of this mind. I, tr- I, I will walk in faith with all of this soul. Again, double-souled means to be to have a fracture. And the Greek philosophers love this. They talked about this a lot. Um, whatever. But to, to have a fracture in your soul, this isn't the perfect idea, but it, it's kind of like the idea of having, having a split personality or that one day you act, you have certain values and beliefs and you stand one way and then the next day you act a, certain, a different way. You have different values that you, you quickly kind of waver and... and what double-minded means is that you kind of waver on the basis of what you think is helpful in the moment. And so what we see here is James is saying, you should not, um, you should not ask God for wisdom with a double-minded posture and expect God to answer your prayer. Because God's not looking for people's wish list. His name's not Santa Claus. Okay, God, God's not looking for you to come just in your moments of trouble and to say, uh, here are my six things that I need. And then you to get up and go live how you want to live on the basis of what you want to do. It's not like, you know, as a kid, do you ever watch like these movies where uh, kids have superpowers and then you think for a second that maybe you have superpowers? You know what I'm talking about? Is that just me? I, maybe I have that power. And so, so you don't really believe it, but you kind of believe it. But you, so you believe it enough just to try it. You know what I'm talking about? No one else walked off the roof with an umbrella. That was just me. Um, there, there are people who pray that way. I don't really believe, but I, but I maybe believe enough to try, I'll try it. I'll, tr- I'll try to lobby up. And, and James is saying here, that, that is not even close to what God is looking for. He's looking for people who say, I will live doggedly devoted to you, period. Through hell or high water, I'm going to be a person of faith. The enemy can come with, with doubt and unbelief and tempt and do whatever he wants to do, but I'm going to be sure. I'm going to set this whole mind on loving God, this whole heart on loving God. James says that those that are double-minded are tossed to and fro like, like, a, like a ship 
on a raging sea, just left and right. You're just constantly living in chaos. You have no stability, no capacity to live a steady life. The Bible says that God's steadfast love endures forever. Did you remember Solomon said to the Lord, you honored my father David because of his faithfulness and his devotion and that he loved you with all of his heart. That, that God, when, when God calls David a man after his own heart, it's because David had this faithful, consistent, all of me belongs to God, period. And James is saying that all of you who come to God with your kind of wish list and Santa Claus lobbying up, uh, God's not actually into that at all. And you shouldn't expect your prayers to be answered. James calls that fickle. He calls that instability. He, he is... The idea of the soul, I've got time, okay? You guys act like you got some place to be, we'll chill out, okay? I got this. You're on my schedule now. The idea of the soul, biblically speaking, it, most people define your soul as your, your mind, your will, and your emotions. Um, in the place of your soul, you're going to have emotions, right? You're, you're going to be... You're going to experience fear. You will experience fear. You will experience anger. You'll experience uh, sorrow. These things are, are natural. They're, they're, they, they should be um, almost signs of, of what's happening, right? When you, when you feel sorrow because you lost a loved one, that, that's not sin, Right? If I feel sorrow because I lost someone I love, it's probably a sign that I actually loved people with the love of God. Right? If you lose someone close to you and you really don't care, that, that's actually a problem. Um, so the emotions are there for a reason. They're, they're healthy. Uh, they're, they, they should be recognized. But, but your emotions are not leaders. Right? Like you, you can't make your decisions on the basis of your emotion. Like my my faith, my my mind chooses to love God. Period. Even when I feel like garbage today. Even when I feel exhausted. When I, I tell Haley some days, I wake up and I say, I feel about as spiritual as a jar of peanut butter today, um, and that means not at all. Okay, I've got to go lead prayer, and I feel like a rock. Um, but I must get to the place where my soul. My will rises up and says, I don't really care what I feel like. God is worthy of glory and honor and praise. And I will be single-minded, right? I'm singly devoted to loving this God no matter what's going on in the realm of my emotion. When you let your emotions speak too loud, the days where you feel disgusting... You'll let yourself just slide into slothfulness or whatever. Maybe you'll slide back into some sin. And now you're double-minded back and forth. James is saying you must be people of faith who love God single-mindedly, devoted to serving Him. You must choose faith. The Word of God must be final, period. And there there's stability. And there there's completeness, wholeness, anchoredness. Again, I, I, as we get ready to wind down, James says um, the double-minded should not expect God to answer their prayers. This is a theme in James. James is going to say the fervent prayer of a righteous man 
availeth much, as the King James, or has great power in its working. James does not say the, the fervent prayer of all people has great power in its working. James doesn't say prayer works. He actually says fervent prayer by righteous people works. Um, now, I, I wish you that it was just prayer works. That would be a lot easier, right? Um, but what, what he's showing us, and I can show you the same theme in Peter. So Peter says, um, honor your wife for the sake of your prayers. In other words, Peter says, treat your wife like garbage. God ain't listening to you, buddy. Um, the, the theme is that God is actually looking for friendship. People who really walk with him. Again, prayer cannot be my, my wish list that I lobby up every day and hope the kind of random man in the sky will hear. Prayer is my daily communication with the lover of my soul, period. And James says the fervent prayer of a righteous man, of a man who lives totally devoted to God, just walks with God, those prayers have great power in its working. Then do you remember what James says right after that? He starts talking about Elijah, right? So, so James is saying, look at Elijah. Look at the fervency and the devotion and the com- conviction. And watch Elijah say, no rain until I say so. And God answers his prayer. He's, he's calling us to a place of not, again, not flippancy in our prayer life, but, but intimate relationship with the Holy Ghost where we are friends of God. We really love God. God hears our prayers, answers our prayers, and walks with us. People who want to walk with God and pursue real relationship with God, God will grant wisdom with, with a viciousness. God will hear, will come. Now, we'll tie it together quickly. Or longly, if I want, okay? <laughs> Solomon recognized that to truly lead in a righteous way, he was going to have to have discernment. Discernment is a good word for godly wisdom. Again, it, it means practical Boots on the ground. How do I walk in holiness in the midst of chaos? Solomon's not asking for worldly wisdom or to be the smartest person in the room, to be able to be puffed up intellectually, to understand all varying ideas, although he will grow in those things. But he's asking for the wisdom of the Father that will keep his feet on a straight path. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean? When I get to the place where I recognize God's holiness and I've experienced the the terrifying tremble of being in the presence of a holy God and I get up and walk saying, I must live my life in light of this revelation. God is awfully holy. When you get there, when you've seen the fire of God, Isaiah, right? I was caught up. I saw God high and lifted up. When you, when you realize that God is terribly holy, beautifully holy, wonderfully holy, and that my life must be lived in light of that truth, then you begin to find wisdom. Wisdom is the pursuit of righteousness in the midst of a chaotic world. James is saying, you must pray. You live in trials. You live in cultural phenomena. Watch election cycles coming back around soon enough. And everyone's going to be at each other's throats. And some of you guys are going to lose your Christianity in 30 seconds. Okay. Um, we're going to have to find wisdom to live in chaos. Wisdom that's after holiness. 
God leads us through trials, he says, because he's leading us to completion, to perfectness, to maturity. Then he says, we must be people of prayer who pray with single-minded, all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, single-minded devotion. Ask with wholeness of heart. Why don't you stand to your feet? Worship team, if you guys want to come. Unless you guys want me to handle worship today, I can do that. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that this word would pierce our hearts. We ask that you'd lead us from confusion, that you would lead us out of delusion, that we'd be people of truth and faithfulness, discernment and wisdom. Bless us, Lord. Use us, Lord. In the name of your Son.